everyone uh, once again the the old faces who have been familiar to me and the new ones who I've uh, yet to meet uh, it's good to see y'all here um, I want to pray for us real quick um, as we as we open our Bibles to James um, dear father we're thankful to you today um, for your great love for us for that love shown to us in your gospel for the love shown to us in giving us the salvation of our souls and giving us your son, Jesus. And Father, to give us the gift that we never could have deserved. Um, we could have life in you. It's just a privilege this morning to, to see what James says about what that life looks like, what you're like, um, what the gospel is like. Um, and so I'm thankful for this for this body, uh, for this church, you've called to yourself for its faithfulness to you, and just pray that you edify us today with your word. And Father, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in your name, amen. Um, so, a few, um, a few months ago, I got the chance to learn how to fly. I got, um, there was this dude named Jason Wilkinson, and um, I saw a post from one of my professors on Facebook, and he said that this guy that he knew was basically teaching people how to fly, the intent being to train people who want to be missionaries how to be pilots, but it could also just be open to if you are interested in flying, which I don't know quite yet if I want to be a missionary. That's a conversation for me and God to have another day, but I wanted to fly, and so I was like, this is going to be great. I'm only taking two classes this semester because I'm poor, and this one is not expensive, so I'll just go and study how to fly for a semester and fill my time that way. Um, and so I spent the, the pretty much all of fall semester once a week studying with Jason how, how to fly. You have to do what's called ground school first, which is you study everything about flying before they actually let you in the plane so you don't crash and burn once you're actually in the air, because that would be bad. Um, and one of the things that we learned were all the instruments that are on your panel in your plane. Um, you only really need six to kind of, to kind of function in the air. Um, you need an altimeter, which is telling you how high you are. You have an airspeed indicator, which is how fast you're going. You have an attitude indicator, which is basically telling you if you're straight, and straight with the horizon. So it's like this little dash, and it kind of tells you which way the wings are tilted so, you're, so you know where the horizon is. You have your Vertical speed indicator, which is telling you how fast you're climbing or descending. Um, let's see if I'm forgetting any. You have your heading indicator, which is telling you where you're going. That's important. And you have your turn, in, like your turn indicator, which is telling you if you're making a good turn or not. Um, and so in all that, he says, you know, you can fly the way you're training without these instruments. Because we always training what's called VFR, which is called visual flight rules, meaning that you fly by sight. Um, however, if you're VFR trained, you're not allowed to fly in the clouds because once you're in the clouds, what happens is this wonderful thing called spatial disorientation. 
which is where you all of a sudden have no idea whether you're up, whether you're down, whether you're climbing, whether you're descending, whether you're backwards or forwards, because your brain has no basis of perception from which to operate, and so it just gets all sorts of confused. And so you have to learn how to use your instruments first, and then you actually have to pass tests and get what's called IFR certified, which is Instrument Flight Rules Certified, before you're actually allowed to fly in the clouds. And kind of like that, I think James kind of understood a little bit about the way that instruments are important in telling us where we are and what we're doing so we don't have anything terrible, namely if you're in the air that you crash and die, um, whether anything like that is going to happen. He understands the fact that when you're in the clouds, you need something to tell you where you are so you can get where you're going. And so when we come to the text today, we're reading from James 1, 16 through 27. James, is, James has three admonitions in, in this text to do not be deceived, to not deceive yourselves, to not deceive your heart. Because he understands that the heart is full of sin, the heart is sinful, and it's full of deceit. And so, in the midst of the Christian life, what happens is sometimes when we're confronted with sin, when sin clouds our judgment, when sin clouds our eyes, when sin clouds our heart, if we don't have something to go back to, if we don't have truths that we can hold on to, if we don't have instruments that we can look at, then we easily get lost and confused and we end up crashing and we end up burning. And so James is, the title of my message today is Trust Your Instruments. And namely just one instrument. Because the one instrument that we need right here is what James has thankfully written part of us for is the Word of God. And so... Basically, the main idea that I want to try and convey to us today is in in the testing and maturing of our faith as we're walking with Christ, that we not be deceived by sin in regard to four things that James is going to lay out for us. He's going to say we're not supposed to be deceived by sin in regards to God's character, God's character, the gospel's character, obedience's character, and religion's character. And instead, we must trust what the word says about them. So I'm going to read the text for us real quick, and we'll dive in. Um, Starting in verse 16, reading from the English Standard Version. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so, we come to the first part of that. Verses 16 and 17 are kind of where James opens in, and he's talking about God's character in these first two verses. And he has three things that he wants to to get across to us. He says, Do not be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And so, Every good gift and every perfect gift is meant to highlight that God is perfectly generous in his character. And so, with the emphasis on the fact that every good thing comes from God, he's looking back a little bit, if we remember from last week of the first few verses, um, where he's talking about that God gives good gifts of wisdom, he gives good gifts of earthly possessions, he gives the testing of faith and a crown of life to those who have endured in their faith and love for him, and how it's a... It's a mistake to think that anything bad is from God, that temptations can come from Him, that evil desires come from Him, that sin comes from Him, or that death comes from Him. And so basically you take that mentality that He's laid out kind of specifically and then does it generally. Every good gift, every perfect gift, that every good thing comes from God. And so I can say with pretty, with pretty good confidence that I know that every good thing in my life that I've ever received has come from God. And I can say with perfect confidence that every good thing in your life that you have ever received is also from God. And so take that to heart, um, that God is a good giver, that God is perfectly generous. And so in looking at basically the growing of your faith, which is one of James, it's probably one of James' main themes in in the book, if not the entire theme is, from verse 3, for you know that, or, uh, sorry about that, verse, verses 3 and 4, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is James's point in this basically entire letter. And so to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, you have to grow in maturity and grow in faith and grow in Christ, and you will be complete one day in Him. But in that walk that we're now in, we have to trust God's generosity, because we're not there yet. We need, we need the Word to tell us this so that we don't see that anything that's bad comes from God or that anything that's good doesn't come from God, because you can make that mistake too. And so sin would have you deceived, um, to have you believe that not everything good is from God, that there's better things out there than Him that can give you good and perfect gifts, or even that the gifts themselves are better and more perfect than God is. Um, but... Don't believe it, because the Word says that our God is a perfect giver and that He's better than any gift. And so the second thing that James then points across is that these good gifts are coming from the Father of lights. They come down from Him, and this crazy term, the Father of lights, which I love. Um, And what James wants to highlight there is that God is the sovereign giver of all good things. He is the Father of all that is good. and he's, he's the creator of all that is good. So that, that means that the times and places and the circumstances and the coming of his gifts and the gifts themselves are all designed by him. This is highlighting his creative power here. And they're uniquely designed and shaped to be received by all that he's created, to you and to everything. Um, and so God's sovereignty is displayed mainly here in his power and ability to create all that is good. 
Um, and so James here uses the term the father of lights, which is a really cool term, and I love it because it's found nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only time it's found. James basically is, is highlighting the fact, he, the way I kind of think of it is the way he kind of takes you outside and tells you to kind of look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the stars, the heavenly bodies that he's created, looking back to Genesis 1 in that, and saying that God created these good things. And God created every good thing because he created, um, yeah, he created everything good that you will ever receive, everything that you will ever need. He knows when you need it, where you need it, without fail, every time. And so in the testing of your faith, in the maturing of your faith, you trust in God's sovereignty. You're not to be deceived by sin, by the clouds of sin, which would make you believe that he is less than Lord over everything, less than Lord over creation, less than Lord over every good thing, less than perfect, less than all-powerful, less than all-knowing, less than holy, wise, or loving. You don't, don't believe it. Because the Word says that we have a supreme God who created all things, who is worth our worship and worth loving. And so as we're, as we're working down through the rest of that, we see that this Father of lights, that there is no variation or shadow due to change in him. And so from this, we can see that God is perfectly consistent in his character. And so basically, if, if you're looking at the, the father of lights imagery, God, James is saying that the lights can change, that lights are merely created objects, but God, the father of those lights, is completely perfect. Lights can change, but God does not. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. He will not vary in his generosity or sovereignty, Nothing can cause him to do so, and nothing is greater than he, and nothing is better than he. And so the main takeaway in this is that no bad thing comes from the Father. Because you can see that if he's sovereign over everything, and if he's generous in all things, if he gives all things, the mistake can be made that you can say, well, God gives bad things too. No. You've got to say no, that no bad thing, no bad thing comes from the Father. He is the unchanging giver of every good thing and everything good. He will never give in a way that varies with who he is. He gives no bad gifts. He gives no imperfect gifts. And so his gifts are meant to reflect his character. Therefore, they must be good. And so in the maturing of your faith and the walk of, of the Christian life, you must trust in the consistency of God. You cannot be deceived by sin, which would have you believe that God changes in his ways, that he's vacillating or varying, that he's inconsistent and incoherent and untrustworthy. But our God is the Father of lights. He never flickers. He never changes in his goodness. And so once, once James has laid out how he sees God and how the way he sees God informs him on how to, how to live the life, how, to, how the truth of God guards against deception in the Christian life. Then he goes on to what flows out from God, the perfect gift that flows out from God. He says, don't be deceived regarding the gospel's character. And so as with God as the perfect giver, you have then the perfect gift in verse 18, the gospel. Um, if you're going to fight sin in your life, if you're going to endure in loving God to the end, if your faith is going to withstand the refining fire of tests and trials, you have to remember that you have already received the most perfect gift that you will ever receive from God, and that is life in Him through the gospel. 
And so I've never really understood James as like one of the great places to go to for looking at a really concise presentation of the gospel. But verse 18 really is pretty daggum good. Um, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be, kind of a, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. <laughs> and so what is James saying? There's so much here. Um, for one thing, he's talking about a new birth. He's talking about a new birth, which means that if you're born, if you needed to be born again, if you need to have a new birth, you were previously dead. And so you needed, you needed something to make you alive again, and you were dead because of your sin. You were dead because of trespasses, because you walked in the ways of the world, because you could not obey, because you broke with God. You were sinful in nature. You were dead without him. And so, but now that there's a new birth here, that God offers something now that is completely new, that you have a new life that is qualitatively and fundamentally different from what you were before. And so the old life that you lived was death, and now the new life that you live is life because you've received your new birth in five ways. That's a lot of ways, but it's really good. Trust me on this. And so you receive your new birth by the grace and power of God. And so it says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. And so God, in his own will, in his own grace, no one made him do this. He gave us Christ. He did not have to do that. He could have left us dead. He could have left us to our sin because we willfully rejected him. And we are born that way to willfully reject him. We are born in sin. But he said, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to give you Christ. He gives, him, he gives us himself from his own grace. He gives us salvation by faith alone in Jesus, who by his death and resurrection accomplishes salvation for us, taking the penalty for our sin, which we could not, we could not atone for, and he defeated sin and death. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what he does for us. And it's, it's open to everyone who's willing to have faith in that, um, but it, never forget that it's never a gift that you deserve. God's grace is what gives it. And it's new birth by the power of God. So he gave this. He gave this new life. No one else could do this. He alone is able to accomplish this. No one else has power to do this. No, no other thing has power to do this. Otherwise, there would have been no need for Christ. Christ alone could accomplish it, was able, and he does. And so you also have new birth by the Spirit of God. So it's God himself also given to us the Holy Spirit, which gives us new birth. And that's not explicit here in James, but it's explicit in the Bible. So I'm going to turn to John 3 real quick, because I think this is, this is probably the best place to look at it. And he's, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus has got a question or two, and Jesus answered him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so that the Spirit of God given to us is necessary for life and indeed gives us life. 
Next, he gives us new birth by the word of God. This is the next little part of the section of this verse is that he brought us forth by, forth by the word of truth. And I'm going to go back to John again real quick. Y'all don't have to go with me there. Just, just, uh, just listen to the word. Um, John 6, 63 through 64 says, um, I lost it. Sorry, I lost my bookmark here. Bear with me. Okay. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so we know from John 1 that Jesus is the word. He is the word of God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But the word is also revealed. The word of God reveals the life that we are to live. It reveals the gospel to us. It reveals Christ to us. And so we are born by the word of truth. And lastly, we have a new birth to be the first fruits of God. And so this is an interesting term. It's an Old Testament term. Um, and so basically what it, meant to be set, what it meant to be the first fruits to God or of God is, if you look at basically Leviticus and a few other places, it's there in Exodus as well. It means to be set apart for the ownership and purposes and worship of God. And so... With the Israelites, when God gave them the law, they were to consecrate or set apart their first fruits of their crops, their firstborn livestock, and even their firstborn sons to God. God said, set these things apart for me because they are mine. And so as the new people of God, we are in Christ now are the true first fruits of the harvest through him, set apart for the ownership and purposes and worship of God which we now do by bearing the fruits of the Spirit and being obedient to the Word which gives us life and walking in the good works that God has prepared for us, which is Ephesians 2.10. And so that whole mentality right there, this this whole new birth, this whole new birth is an emphasis on the fact that this is the perfect gift that comes from God. This is the good gift. He gives us His Son, and through His Son, He gives us life. He gives us the Spirit, the Spirit gives us life. He gives us the Word, the Word gives us life. And so these are, these are the best gifts that we can have, and that gift is the gospel. And so when it, comes to, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to being deceived by sin, you always have to come back there. We never get past the gospel. If you're ever tempted to get past the gospel and living your life and living the Christian life, you're adding something to it. The gospel is all you need because it's the good news of life. It's the revealed word of God, the message of truth. It's, on, it's his goodness on full display. And because it's his goodness on full display, you can trust that he's trustworthy to bring you through in your life because you are alive in him. And so don't be deceived when sometimes sin will tell you that this new life can, is, is easy, that it's, that it's painless, that nothing bad can happen to me because I'm a Christian now or anything like that. But this life is not easy or painless. It's good, and it's the result of a good gift from God, a good, perfect gift from God. But we know that it's hard because we still deal with sin, because sin is still prevalent in this world, because death happens in this world, and because we, we need constantly to be reminded of this truth. And so we trust in the truth of the Word and hold fast to the God who accomplished everything for us so that we might be his. That is what we have to hold on to when we look to the gospel. That because I'm saved, because God called me his and gave me life, I can, 
I can do this because it's him and me, because he gave me life. And so when it comes to being people of the word, when it comes to being people of God, that necessarily means that because you were literally brought forth by the word of truth, that you are now an obedient follower of Christ. You obey what the word has revealed because the word is in you. The word gave birth to you. It's part of your DNA, so you obey it. And so don't be, received, don't be deceived by obedience's character. And that's verses 19 through 25. And so there's three big things here that James is, that James is saying. He says, obey by submitting to the word's authority. And so the authority of the word of God is to produce the righteous living that God desires in his people. And so the word says, be holy as I am holy. In Leviticus eleven forty through through 45. And so in verse 20, when it speaks of the anger of man not producing the righteousness of God, what he means by there is that holy standard, holy standard of living that God calls us to be, that God calls us to live by. And so as people born by the word, the word is now how you live your life. It is Christ formed in you, the life that you live. It is the spirit living in you and the word that has birthed you. Like I said, it's part of your DNA now. And therefore, you submit to its authority. It has, it has the authority to tell you what to do, what not to do. It has the authority to tell you what sin is, what righteousness is. It can tell you, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because those things are what produces righteousness. And those things, if you don't do them, are what produces unrighteousness, which is now as a Christian, something you are not supposed to do. And so it is the word that does this. It is the word that does this. And in doing that, it says also, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And so it can tell you to leave sin behind, to reject sin. It, had, it tells you what sin is, and it tells you to leave it. It tells you to go away from it. It tells you to flee it. It tells you to reject it because that is not who you are anymore. Because you're alive in Christ, you're alive with a new life a life that is no longer of sin, and so you turn from sin in worship and in your life. And so the word is the authority to tell you to do this um, because it's completely true. It's completely inerrant, infallible, inspired by God, and it can define all these things. And, and so because we're now people of the word and because now we have this word with us and we're called to live by it, we then also have to know what the word says, right? And so study your word. Get in your word. Be in your word. And don't just know it. you got to love it too. Psalm 119. Dwell long in it. It's the longest, longest psalm in the Bible. It's, I think, the longest chapter, if I'm not mistaken. But it's 100 plus, 100 plus verses, I forget how, exactly how long it is, but it's all about the love of the word, the love, the love of this, this word that God has given to us. And so dwell long in it. And it will teach you to love, love what God has given you, give you desire and give you hunger for it. And I want you to listen to it. It helps you to listen to it. You listen to his commands and you love the commands because that's what the word is. It's what... It's the revealed word of God. It's giving you life. And so in this, don't be deceived regarding the word's authority. Because sin would have you believe that you can define what the word says in regards to what sin is and what righteousness is. But you are not your own authority. The word is your authority if you're in Christ. Sin would have you believe that you don't have to submit to any authority. 
It would have you believe that the Bible isn't true in some places or it's outmoded in some places and that some teaching is good but other parts are irrelevant in today's world. Um, it would have you believe that it's just not the complete and true Word of God. But don't believe it. Trust what the Word says it is. And so the second thing, and this is what 22 through, through 24 is about, is obey by doing the Word's commands. I won't spend long here because it's really, really simple. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so if we're submitting to the word's authority, if we're reading the word, if we're studying the word, if we're loving the word that gave us life, we will obey it. And it's obedience by doing. Because if you're a child of the word and you look into the word, and this is the analogy that James uses, is that you're forgetting who you are. If you have the word and you and you just read it, and you're like, oh, well, I guess that's cool, but I don't really have to do anything with this, then you're deceiving yourselves. You're, you're no longer remembering what you, what you are, your face. You can't remember it. You're not remembering it. And so, in contrast, he says in verse 25, the one who looks intently into the perfect law and perfect, perseveres is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And so... Just, just, one, just one more before I move on, on, obedient, on obeying the Word's commands. So I grew up in a quiet time culture, right? And so that was the, that was the main thing that you had to do as a Christian. Is like if you're a good Christian, you're doing your quiet time. You're, getting, you're waking up in the morning or maybe you're kind of waiting on later, later on at night. But at least, in, at least at some point in time during the day, you're, you're reading the Word. It could be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 5 minutes. If it's a good day, it's like close to an hour, and you feel really good that day. And that was your check mark. That was your check mark. It's like, I'm a good Christian today because I read my Bible, because I have my quiet time. And so as I'm studying, as I'm studying this and as I'm thinking through this, I think you have to read the Word. That's good. That's beneficial. But if you read the Word, you also have to ask yourself, have I done the Word? And so the quiet time is not meant for you to just be like, oh, hey, I spent time with Jesus today, and that's it. That's all, that's all I need to do in my life. Like, all I have to do is sit there and just read the words of my book. And it's a great book, but the Word is telling you to do things. The Word is commanding you to do things in your life because this is, you are a person of the Word now. And for you to, to just simply refuse to do it just because you don't necessarily think that you have to or if all you really think you have to do is just read it, then you're deceiving yourselves. It's plain and simple. It's plain and simple. So be doers of the word. Ask yourself, ask yourself daily, have I read the word? If I've read the word, have I done the word? Ask yourself that every day, and you will not be deceived regarding obedience. You will not be deceived. And so the last point of James's James' argument to not be deceived regarding obedience is you obey by remembering the word's promises. He calls, he calls the word what he called the word of truth in verse 18. Now he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. And basically what this is, in, this is intended to tell us, and I think it's helpful right here to remember that James is speaking to the 12 tribes, speaking to the diaspora, speaking to Jews, Jewish Christians, mind you, but still people who grew up in a Jewish culture who may now have received Christ, and then once they've received Christ, think, well, I'm no longer under the law anymore. I don't really have to obey it. 
And James says, no, like the law has set you, you are set free from the law that says you have to obey the law to save you. But you obey, you obey the law now because that's, that's who you are in Christ, because you're saved, not to save yourself. You obey, you obey because you're saved. And so let us not be mistaken about the fact that we have to do things. Um, the Christian is marked by obedience to the God who saved them because they're born by the word and the spirit. And so the maturing and testing of faith is meant to produce in us a greater obedience and a greater manifestation of the righteousness that we are already declared to be. We don't have to obey this law. We don't have to do this law because we're trying to earn anything, is what I'm trying to say. We obey it because, that's, because Christ is obeyed perfectly. And because we are in Christ, because we have his spirit, because we have his word, now that's why we obey. We obey because our new life to him is one of joyful obedience and one of abundant faith. And one that says, I trust that God has told me to do these things in his word and I will do them because this is my life now. And so the end part is that you will be blessed in your doing if you do this. I don't think this blessing necessarily has to be material. In fact, I think that that's probably mainly not what it's about. I think the blessing is the reward of glory that you'll receive and the reward of faith that you receive, the reward of growth of faith, the reward of more righteousness, more fruits born in you as you continue in obedience and continue in growth in your Christian life. And those are, those are good things and those are powerful things and those are things that God rewards and he will one day give us the full reward of eternal life with him where sin is no more and we no longer have to battle through these things. We don't have to worry about being deceived because all deception will be gone and all sin will be gone. And that day is coming. But it's essential because this, that day is coming to live like to live like it's coming. I'm going to obey now so, I'm, so I can be fully obedient then. And because I know that God's promised a reward for me, a crown of life to those who endure in this faith. And so don't be deceived regarding obedience. It's what you are now. It's what you are now as a Christian. And so the last point, verses 26 and 27, is if you're following James's argument here, the way that he thinks about God is the base. The way he thinks about God informs the way he thinks about the gospel. The way he thinks about the gospel informs the way he thinks about obedience. And the way he thinks about obedience now the way he thinks about obedience now informs the way he thinks about religion. And so verses 26 and 27 say, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the general principles of obedience now were specific. They're specified in specific ways that James is addressing to his audience. But the generality of what true religion actually is is to seek to love God and love others in action. And that, is, that is true religion. I think it's important, once again, to consider the Jewish audience and consider that their religion, I mean, you can think of the Pharisees mainly here, is that their version of religion was to say all the right things and to basically look nice. Basically to look nice, basically to look nice in their life, make sure they were over there in the temple, they could be seen in the temple, you know, putting money in the offering plate, you could hear them praying loudly and for all men to hear. But that is not what religion is, because that religion is a man-based one. It's one that's seeking to proclaim your own good works, which now then are supposed to make God happy with you. That's not religion. Religion 
is you seek to love God and love others because you have, because you have been loved by God and received life through him in the gospel. That is religion. And so that's the generality here. And I think that there's important things in here. This is not a wholesale picture of what true religion is. I think it's important to remember that. But I think there's, there's things that we need to consider. And the first one is controlling your tongue. And I love the picture of a bridle here because it makes you think about a horse, right? And you're sitting on its back and it's, you got to steer with the reins and the bits in its mouth and the harness on its head. And that's the picture of a bridle. Like that is a bridle. And so not only are you then steering the horse and therefore steering your tongue away from bad things to be saying, but you're steering your horse on a good path, on the path that it's supposed to be on, so you're steering your tongue towards the good things that you're supposed to be saying to edify believers and to edify the world. And so steer away from saying evil. So, yeah, that means cussing. Yeah, that means gossip. Yeah, that means insults. Yeah, that means any sort of slander, any sort of malicious speaking, any sort of hateful words that you could possibly think of to say to somebody, yeah, steer away from those. What do you steer toward? Steer towards proclaiming the love of God. Steer towards preaching the gospel. Steer towards speaking of his great love for you and for this world. Speaking of what he's done for you, what he's doing for others. Speak of what's coming. Speak of the life that you now live and how it's joyful now. Speak of the complete life. Speak of the life that you have. And so control your tongue to say what's good and to turn away from what's bad. Second thing, help the suffering. Help the suffering. Visit orphans and and widows in their affliction. And so you may not know orphans and widows, but you might know someone who's homeless. You might know someone who doesn't have a lot, and so some days they struggle to, to get enough on the table to eat. And you know people who are suffering in their life. And so God is... If we're believing the Bible, if we're reading the Bible, we see that God is one who's always cared for the downtrodden, who's always cared for the widow, for the orphan, for the suffering. And so we should read Matthew 25 hard and see what the consequences are for those who aren't caring for the downtrodden. And that can be your, that can be your homework assignment. I'm not going to read it all right now. Um, but we should remember that as Christians, we... We were the afflicted. We were afflicted by sin. We were afflicted by death. That we were the fatherless. That we were orphans ourselves. That we, that we are absent. That we are alone in this world. Alone in our sin. Alone and without hope. And that in Christ now, that we the church, we the people now are his bride. That we've been adopted as sons by him. So we have a father now. And that we're no longer under the affliction of sin and death. But we receive the blessing of eternal life. And so in all that, we care, for, we care for the downtrodden, we care for the afflicted, we care for the orphan, we care for the widow, we care for those who need caring for, because we care for them, because we care about how God cares for them, of who he is, and we care because he's commanded us to love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the two greatest commandments in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is everyone and especially those who need, who need our help. And so the last thing is abstaining from sin. And there's a link with verse 21, um, which is putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Um, but again, we're seeing that true religion seeks to actively abstain from sin. You're no longer a sinful person. You're in Christ. You have a new life. And that he has not saved you to keep living the life that you once lived. He saved you to keep 
to, to live a new life in, in lockstep with him, in lockstep with the way he lived on this earth, in lockstep in obedience to the law. And so we're not to read this, and I think that we have to be careful here, is when we say keep oneself unstained for the world, that means pull back from the world. And I think that's not what we're called to do either. We're not called to be, you know, people in a monastery where we've put up four walls around ourselves and saying that's the world out there, I don't have to worry about that, I'm good in here. But we are called to be in the world and not of it. We are called to proclaim hope to the world because there is hope coming for those in Christ and there's judgment coming for those that, who are not. And if we're really caring about people, we want people with us in heaven. We want people with us in Christ. We want the family to grow bigger, the body to grow bigger, to be people without number. And so we do that by saying we're different from the world. We no longer are enslaved to sin, so we live a righteous life. We live an obedient life. We worship Christ. We worship a God, the only God to be worshipped. We worship Christ alone. And so we no longer do the things that you do, but instead of pulling back and say, but this is just for me, and you're cool with what you do, and that's fine. No, we're called to be in the world, and we're called to proclaim the love of Christ, and we're called to live live life in sight of people. And yeah, that means it gets hard. Yeah, that means we get persecuted. But that's what we're supposed to do because that's because God so loved the world. He loved the world. He loved us while we were still in sin. And so we love people while they are still in sin because he gave himself, his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. And so when we're thinking about what religion is, we're not to be deceived It's not ceremony. You cannot earn your salvation through it. And it's no action of a a heart trying to earn God's approval. And it's not a separate part of your life that does not inform every other part of your life as well. It's not Sunday in a box and Monday through Saturday in another one or any other day of the week. Your religion is your whole life given to God to love him and love people. That is true religion, to do so in what you say and what you do, to obey him and his word out of a life born from the spirit and the word, a life grateful for the perfect gift of life from the gift, from the perfect giver of all good things. And so in closing, um, I just want to say that I'm grateful for this, for this passage because this is what God used to save me. That section 22 through 24, I was at a small group meeting at UGA's Baptist Collegiate Ministry one night, and I don't even know how I got there, but I opened it, and my small group leader, Will, had um, just was kind, of, was kind of a free night, and so he said, you know, what's on your mind? What do you want to talk about? And I just read this passage, and I was like, Will, we need to talk through this because I don't think this is me. Because it's be doers of the word or not, here's only deceiving yourselves. Because I did not know what my face looked like. Because I never read the word. I didn't know what I was supposed to be. I was completely deceived as to, to who I was. And so that night we talked through what it looked like to know yourself, to that in Christ you know yourself fully because in him you are completed and who are you supposed to be 
the life that he gives and what he did to give you that life. And then that night I accepted Christ in my dorm room. And so if I kind of read up a little bit, I could have actually seen what the gospel was in verse 18, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but he got me there anyway. Um, and so, but I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for the word. I'm grateful that God saved me. Um, and so live a grateful life. Live a grateful life that is one that is completely thankful for what God's done. It's completely thankful for his word that he's given us. And born by it to do it. And be completely grateful that he's rescued us and that he's taken us to a better place. And let's not let sin get in the way of that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are our good, good Father. You're perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in, in your giving because you only give what's good. If there is no darkness in you, there is no sin in you. There is only light and there is only life. And we are blessed. We are blessed to be hearers of that which you have given us so freely. And so, Father, I pray, for, I pray for this body, I pray for this church, that they would be obedient doers of the word, that they would love you with a deeper love each and every day. They would seek to be people of the word, people of the spirit, people of Christ. And that, Father, if there's any in here who don't know you, I pray that they've heard the gospel preached. I pray that they see the life that's held out to them, the life that is so much better than the life that they are now in. And, Father, they take it for themselves. And, Father, I'm also thankful that as, as we come before this table, we get to celebrate, get to celebrate your body and blood, and that we're not, we're not upset with you, that you, you gave yourself to die, but we're so, so thankful because you did. And so we take this table in celebration together as people who are saved by you and rescued by you. And, and Father, as we think about what, what it is to be a Christian, that we think about your obedience and we seek to follow